Thanks for downloading Development Drums. I'm Owen Barder, and my guest today is Stefan Durkin, who was last on Development Drums back in 2014, I think. Stefan, welcome. Well, uh, thank you, Owen, for having me back. Stefan is Professor of Economic Policy at the Blavatnik School of Government at Oxford University, where he's also Director of the Centre for the Study of African Economies and a Fellow at Jesus College. Uh, For the last 11 years, Stefan has straddled academia and policy work. He was chief economist at DFID. And then for the last two years, he's been development policy advisor to successive foreign secretaries at FCDO, the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office. I think today is officially Stefan's last day as the development policy advisor. So I'm hoping he will enjoy his new freedom and talk disloyally about what it's been like working uh, working in the FCDO for the last few years. Stefan has just published his new book, Gambling on Development, which is available in all good bookstores and online, and that's mainly what we're going to be talking about today. Stefan, congratulations and welcome back to Development Drums. Well, thank you for having me, Owen. Um, I'd like to get straight to the central thesis of your book, which is the idea of elite bargains. Uh, tell us what you mean by an elite bargain in development and why they're important. Right. Um, you know, in every society, there will be people in leading positions, not just in politics, but also in military, but also in the business, in civil society and so on, that that actually have power and influence over the direction that a country is going. And that's what I mean by the elite. I I just think of it as more than political leadership, but actually a broader group of people that seem to have enough power and influence to guide countries. And every society has these, and they are quite important in terms of, you know, what is happening in terms of the way the state is used, the way people have access to business opportunities, how they have access to rents, to use the taxpayers' money, and so on and so on. And it's it's important to think of any society that can that has these features. Some of them may be more kleptocratic, where that small group is really focused on stealing from people and, and, and accumulating wealth. In other places, it may be much more open. And, you know, it could be that anyone could join it or it may not be too hard. Now, we shouldn't think simply that, oh, well, um, rich countries, they surely must be beautiful and open. You know, we have also our rules of access to resources. You know, we have inheritance laws that actually will mean if your family was rich in the 13th century, you'll still be rich now. Um, so we, every society has it. Now, what's important for very poor countries at the beginning of development Um, the direction in which the elite wants to take it is really crucially important. And what I call a development bargain, a bargain for growth and development, is only one of possible outcomes that the elite can choose. And, And my thesis is really, if you want development, if you want growth and development in a country, you have to have an elite that has a shared commitment to try to achieve it. So elite in this case isn't a sort of judgment about their qualities and skills, but just a recognition that these are people who have 
power and access to resources. And the, and the question is what choices they make. Exactly. That's exactly it. And, and the important thing is I'm glad you mentioned choices because there's often a lot of uh, views of, of about the world that it's all unchanging. But actually, you know, the choices elites make changes over time. And that actually makes it quite interesting. And that was one of the reasons why I wanted to write a book. Because there are some of these developing countries that maybe 20, 30, 40 years ago, we would have considered really in a bad state as if nothing would ever happen. You know, there's the famous thing that Henry Kissinger said about Bangladesh, or at least one of his advisors uh, is likely to have said it, uh, somewhere in the late 1970s, he said, Bangladesh is a basket case. Nothing will ever come from it. In fact, my very first essay in development economics was that title. And of course, in the early 80s, I answered it, oh yes, it's not going to go anywhere. Demographically, it's going to go wrong. Shocks, politics is terrible and whatever. But actually, it's a country like that actually looks pretty good in development indicators now. And I kind of say, well, there is clearly some choice of elites there to actually, they made a choice to actually go somewhere else. So what you're saying is that the endowment is not destiny, that, that, you know, that you're not obliged just because you are a landlocked country or you are, you know, have a disease burden because of being tropical or you have a history of colonialism. That doesn't mean that you can't make choices. Uh, that the people in power can't make choices to promote or deny development. Going yes, exactly. Forward. Of course, I mean, history matters. You know, um, a small country like Malawi, landlocked with few endowments, it's unlikely going to turn into Singapore, even if the politicians want it to or the business elite wants it to. So the, the, your, your choices are constrained, of course, by history. Colonialism, of course, matters for structures in lots of countries. But it's not enough to explain it. There is actually agency and there, is, there are moments in history that elites make choices and they begin to actually move a country in another, in another direction. And I think that's in, indeed what I want to emphasise. So about 25 years ago, when I first, last century, when I first joined DFID, I was very influenced by a book, Africa Works, uh, by um, Chabal and Deleuze. And they argued that, essentially, that Westerners didn't really understand the way governments work across the developing world, particularly in Africa in this case. And that what we didn't understand was that elites were making choices that enriched themselves that we saw these countries as dysfunctional, but from the point of view of the decision makers in the country, they were highly functional. They were rent-seeking, and they were accruing large rents for themselves. And so the system worked for the people who were making the choices in it. Uh, To what extent can elites make choices for long-term development that still benefit them? I mean, isn't the Africa Works thesis that it's always going to be better for the people in power to stick with the kleptocratic non-development state what, what space is there for there to be a better choice that would both benefit the elites and promote development? So, you know, um, it is, of course, one of the considerations that the elites will, 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 will make, which is, you know, the status quo may be quite comfortable for yourself. But in a world that's evolving and in, including, you know, things that happen locally in your, your country, you may want to make some of these choices to have a slightly more longer term vision because over time your position may erode um, or you know your legitimacy is fundamentally questioned increasingly and you know one thing that 
political entrepreneurs all over the world have known is that, you know, exploiting discontent is one way of destabilizing uh, settings. So you could have elite players also that want to destabilize uh, what you're doing. I mean, it's, it's a good example is actually is also if you if you even just look at Nigeria. OK, so clearly my thesis is clear. They're not making the choice to go away from what Africa Works thesis was somehow. You know, there is, in the end, an elite. And you can, can really imagine it's quite a cozy setup. You know, you have something like, you know, depending on the oil prices and so on, but say between 20 and 40 billion dollars uh, per year as oil revenue that one way or another the elite can control via tax revenue of other sources via the petroleum companies. And you now if you divide... Um, you know, 40 billion among 200 million people, then you get $200 per person. So if you give everybody a little share of, the, of that thing, well, that's very little. But if I divide it uh, between rather than 200 million people, 200,000 people, then I get $200,000 per person right. in that elite thing. I think I've summed up Nigeria, which is essentially, it's a quite a broad group. Some hundreds of thousands of people, some of course far richer than others have it. Now, but at the same time, that's not a very big sum either. That is not a massive sum. And at some point, because, you know, elites need to sustain themselves, they need to always leave some, uh, uh, let other people to enter and whatever, they may actually choice, look, maybe a growth choice, a choice of actually growing the pie rather than just redistributing the existing wealth is actually becoming better for us. And then, then, then we get it. So I find it quite interesting. It's another form, of course, of, of things that people are known around natural resources, is that, especially in such settings, it's actually hard to begin to change that elite bargain. It's interesting Bangladesh doesn't have natural resources. There the elite clearly had to start growing the economy to actually get it. In the book I talk even about Museveni in the 1990s, where he recognized the nature of the politics that he had in his country. I mean, he's such an interesting operator. He probably knew in the 1990s that he wanted to be a lifelong president, but he wanted to make sure that he could keep on buying off all the others right. in the politics to do this. You better grow the pie to be able to keep on doing it. So it can be in your interest to begin to actually grow and to actually do it. But So one nuance of that might be that if, the, if you're a natural resource-rich economy, um, then... If those natural resources are highly concentrated, if they're in an oil well or a copper mine, then actually you can control those resources and rent seek without the consent of the population, without needing to provide, you know, your elite bargain is I'm going to control these resources and screw the rest of you. If your natural resources are spread, you know, if it's tea plantations and coffee or timber, if they're spread across the whole nation then the only way you can stay in control of those rents is is through some consent and the ability to control territory. Yeah. And and in that case, you are going to need some kind of development strategy where other people share, at least in part, in the in the benefits of that income. Is that is that a reasonable it's, hypothesis? It's a reasonable thing. But I also don't, don't want to make the kind of natural resource trap as if it of an, 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 an endless trap. You know, think of Botswana. It didn't go that route. It actually early on, it's diamonds, and uh, and 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 somehow it made other choices. 
it actually started using these resources also to build up an economy and to have a bit more diversified economy and so on. It's now quite a you know well-run, reasonably well-run, reasonably well-off middle-income country uh, that actually used these resources well. So you can still have elites making choices to do this in another way. Um, so one of the things your book is very good at is it has a whole middle section with sort of case studies of different countries. And it's very much in the sort of fly on the wall of a senior British official going and talking to finance ministers and prime ministers and, and central bank governors and so on. And that's, you know, for a development geek, that's that's interesting stuff. And you describe in there some of the success stories. And, you know, you, we can argue about how big a success they've been, but places like China and Vietnam... Indonesia, Ethiopia, Ghana, places that have done relatively well at developing a, a pro-development elite bargain. I, I was reading it looking for the common themes of why do some elites reach a development bargain and some elites stay extractive, if you like. And, you know, so, I mean, let's pick one, say China, you know, massive development success over the last 25 years, you know, numbers of people living in poverty have come way down, economic growth is... So what is the elite bargain in China? Why did the Chinese Communist Party decide not to just extract the money and enrich themselves in the way, say, Putin has been doing? Why Why did... China not do that? What was the elite bargain there on which that development yeah. success has been founded? So, of course, we kind of tend to date it around 1979, where there is, in a sense, a, a change in direction and change of elite bargain. In general, in the book, I kind of think there's probably about three themes why countries may change. Actually, China, all three apply to China. So one is coming out of actually conflict and instability, this kind of need for saying, look, the first thing about an elite bargain is to actually make sure it keeps stability because instability, everybody starts losing. And, and we have plenty of countries like that. The other one is actually the, the importance of legitimacy. At some point, you need some form of legitimacy. Otherwise, again, entrepreneurs can keep on exploiting the discontent and actually destabilize your elite bargain. And the, fi- the third one would be yeah, there's something to do with actually leaders and, inter- and individuals to actually start making choices. Now, quickly to come to China, you know, think of by 1979, um, you know, Communist Party had been already in power for many decades. Mao had died uh, some years earlier. Um, Cultural revolution had been raging. And in fact, that country had become very unstable. In fact, and at the center, it had become very unstable with what was called the Gang of Four, Mao's widow, basically trying to keep these ideas of the Cultural Revolution there, which essentially meant, you know, the party is the the central authority, the narrative is ideology, ideology is the same as direction. There is just all in the service of this kind of idea and, and people don't feature in it. Now, come 1979, this is a pretty unstable country. What actually is remarkable at the time is that a reformist in the party, which we're not necessarily going to win, um, we all think it's Deng Xiaoping as an individual, but it was actually kind of a big group of people that had to actually position themselves and actually convince the others to say, look, our survival is at stake if we can't start getting some form of legitimacy again in this country. 
And they chose to do get legitimacy through growth and development. And I find it generally relatively obvious for Marxist parties to actually want to give some paradise on earth mm. and not just in heaven. So it makes sense. And in fact, food security and growth became the big themes. Actually, poverty reduction, not necessarily initially, that was actually a happy consequence. And it became then a ruthless pursuit in this legitimacy through growth towards the population. You know, it's the same group of people that squashed in 89, Tiananmen Square, and the whole kind of thing. You know, the economic the progress in the economy had to dominate. But that's the nature of that elite bargain. At the same time, I would say there was some remarkable leadership because operating that, you know, from, from ideas and ideology to operating that, you have to really think carefully how you govern that. And of course, the success of China is that they managed to get incredible governance reforms, which actually said we set targets, but we let local officials much more freedom. And so you get these things coming together. And I think that's the kind of the elite bargain, willing to learn, not strongly ideological. You know, it doesn't matter whether the, uh, the cat is white or black, as long as it catches mice, kind of thing to ruthlessly pursue this, to keep stability and also more legitimacy. So one difference from the Africa Works thesis you know, 25 years on, is that it doesn't posit that the decision makers' objectives are entirely about self-enrichment, right? In the, in the case of that you've just described in China, it's about the longevity of the regime, of the Communist Party, it's an ideology. So people like Deng Xiaoping was not trying to figure out what was the best way of maximizing his bank account at the, at the end of his tenure. He was trying to figure out how does how does this regime persist? And that gives him a longer time horizon than if he was just, a, you know, than, uh, you know, uh, Mobutu in Zaire, who, who's just about himself and, his fa and enriching his family. Is that a fair distinction between what you're saying and what Africa work says and, and therefore gives you more ground for optimism? If people yes. care about something other than their own individual wealth, then they're going to be thinking more about development. Yes, so, so, so it's probably two bits to say. I would even say Mobutu, it wasn't just about his own wealth. He loved to power. And, you know, power sometimes means making choices and distributing and, and, uh, and, and, and making choices as well, you know. I think I've worked long enough with politicians now that maybe unlike many of the listeners, I actually sometimes develop a slightly charitable view of politicians as well. You know, it's not that they just drive, be driven by personal enrichment or, or even personal fame. You know, most of the politicians I meet in the end still have some ideas there as well. And I think it's that mixture of things. You know, you um, even in Museveni, I would not say this is all entirely based on on, on, on grabbing money for his family. You know, the man has a vision for, for the country. Mm. Actually, it's probably more to think about is that this, this rent distribution and this kind of keeping people on site is often a way as the only way they see to maintain their power. And it's actually often the weakness of it that they can't really see for any other things. Because I don't think that fundamentally, I mean, there are these individuals, but, you know, it's if you really want to get really rich, you probably don't want to be the number one in a country. You probably want to be in the shadows there and so on and think of the oligarchs. They do not want the political power necessarily. You want to be in the shadows. So I don't think the politician is the one that is the best profession to, to, to totally capture all the rents in a country. So, so yeah, so 
it's definitely different and it's a less cynical view. I mean, I, I, I sometimes, well, at some point someone called me a cynical optimist. I think it's a little bit like I'm quite cynical about what drives things in countries, but there is an optimism about it because people have surprised us and people have actually started doing things to surprise. And I think the Africa Works one was a very dark vision and cynical vision and, um, you know, important to articulate but I don't think I could identify. Actually, to be honest, I never could really get to the end in the book either <laughs> because it is... It's, it's very hard to read. It's very, very hard to read. So I, rec I very much recognise in our own politics, not just across the developing world, this idea that politicians value their own continuity in, in government and in power, partly for good reasons, because yeah. they, they have a vision, they want, they want to achieve things, and so they're constantly compromising on things they believe in, in order to stay influential, in order to pursue in the long run those things that they care about. And that isn't always, as you say, personal enrichment or, or enrichment of their families. But it does. And, and what's interesting is you get this sort of animal farm moment where you wonder whether, whether they've forgotten what they were in politics for, that, that staying in power becomes an end in itself and they sort of forget that there was a reason that they wanted to be in power. And and you you do sometimes see that with particularly with politicians who've been in power for a long time. Yeah. And it and that's and I think that's that's actually again why I find it quite remarkable that there are these countries where you know conditions are really tough. You know they do not have a big bank account in their uh, treasury to spend and spend them out of, themselves out of problems. That they actually are at times making decisions that are clearly with longer horizons than just mere survival, that they actually are generally doing reasonable things um, in very messy countries. You know, it's not the Chinas with the kind of where we have maybe an idealized version of the ability for them to run their country. Indonesia was a pretty messy place under Suharto. Um, you get the African countries, you know, Ghana is not the ideal place uh, where you say it's all just enlightenment, it came out a very tricky thing. But you find somehow that balance where actually that longer term can become a bit more important even in their vision. So again, there is for me a bit of admiration of actually some of the politicians. Actually, what I really, in the, many of these countries really admire is some of the senior technocrats who very cleverly maneuver these spaces, yeah. who keep the horizon longer, even though they need to serve their boss. And, uh, and they, they find ways of doing that. So 25 years on from Africa Works, Asimoglu and Robinson, Why Nations Fail, talked about this distinction between inclusive governments and extractive governments. And one of the things that I was struck reading, you know, it's a very influential book and, and there's a lot about it that seems right. But that what, what it lacks is a theory about why some governments end up inclusive and some governments end up extractive and you you're sort of left with the well don't start from here answer right yeah. uh, you know it's it's all to do with um you know the bubonic plague and that set countries off in different directions and and so you end up do you see your book and your thesis as filling that gap as explaining why some you know that it seems to me that you're sort of building on their idea of the difference between an inclusive and, a, and an ex extractive government but then you're coming to what what is it that enables some elites to choose inclusive and some elites to choose extractive is that is that a fair positioning of your book um possibly i mean i'm i 
you know, I, I didn't write a book consciously to say I need to have 10 years after Asimogli Robinson an alternative or something building on it. But of course, you know, some of the intellectual roots are quite similar. Uh, you know, their book is also quite influenced by Douglas North and mm. uh, not just about the importance of history and institutions, but also about, you know, the idea of elite bargains as the foundation of a state and so on. So there's obviously common roots there. But what I always found problematic, and, and I remember when the book came out, we invited Jim Robinson to come to speak at Diffit. And I remember a, a, a question from the floor as obviously a diffit would come and say what is the policy implication and you know it's very hard to give an answer then in fact their best policy implication always seems to be you know just buy yourself a better history or something you know right. get get somehow start again somewhere and that is actually kind of a weakness because it, it's interesting that some of their other writings alludes also to this idea you know of the agency and the decision maker and the, and the way that the politics today can be influenced and so on. And it, and it's and yes, I think there is an element of trying to fill in the gap. It's like not trying to explain China per se as a centralized state that, that succeeds in centralized planning with central taxation, which is the historical roots, but actually why may it happen in 1979? And they're not very good at explaining why it doesn't didn't happen in 1960, but it happens in 1979. And then I think it's harder as a theory or as a quantitative theory in any case to actually say, well, actually, it's decision-making of people at some moment in time in history and, and, and how different people make decisions that actually nudge you into a particular direction or set the stage for, for, for better things to come. And I think, yes, in that sense, I think it's a bit of trying to fill in that away from historical predeterminism to also kind of shrugging shoulders and so just wait for a lucky draw to actually say, you know, someone can actually change something. So we'll come to the policy implications of your thesis in a second. But so, I mean, one difference of opinion between you and Asimoglu and Robinson is their books basically says that China's reforms will run out of steam because they don't have inclusive institutions. I mean, they predict a bad, either a, a bad outcome for China or some kind of big institutional change. You know, which he was one assumes is either a massive change in or a collapse of the communist regime. You're you seem to be saying something different from that. Is that right? I think I say something different about takeoff. So it's a bit like what question are we asking? Are we asking how you start this process of growth and and how you know across very different systems you can actually achieve quite a lot of growth and and also poverty reduction. Um, while their question is the grander question of where will it end? You know, will China be Singapore? And they say, no, it won't. I don't think I want to give an answer to that question. For me, it's a bit like, I mean, I'm skeptical about the hypothesis that surely, and, and actually Douglas North has this a little bit as well, is that, oh, surely it can't work because we know that it can't work. And well, I think, if I were kind of uh, you know, paraphrasing Shu and Lai in the early 1970s about the French Revolution, it's too early to tell. Right. It's too early to tell. You don't know whether systems like that can renew themselves. And But I definitely have learned, looking around the world, the idea there is a, a single, well-defined, specific system, what they call inclusive institution, but that happens to be 34 countries in the world, um, 
as the only one that can actually get high growth is is another matter. That, that's not a statement about what is a better society or what is what is a society I would prefer to live in. But uh, we'll see how far it gets. It's also interesting how how much has happened in the last 10 years that make us less you know we 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 don't side with Fukuyama's end of history it's not clear anymore what the winning formula is and I so I think that's you know that passage of 10 years makes us a bit more humble about what what is sustainable and and what will last yes so there's 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 much less teleological thinking you know we, we don't quite know that end point where these things are going and, and i agree with you so there's a bit of intellectual humility may well be, be be needed when we make projections about where it ends so on the subject of intellectual humility you're you're pretty scathing about jeff sachs um in your book and there's a you're, you're sort of you know there's been a lot of silver bullets in development thinking you know it's capital it's savings it's foreign aid it's technology it's better policies, it's the Washington consensus, it's better governance, it's institutions. So, and, and you're, you have a, I think it's chapter two, you have a sort of discussion about these various ideas of what's needed. Uh, and you, know, you say there are no silver bullets. Is it fair to say that your theory is, that those are theories about how development happens. Yours is much more a theory about why development happens. Right. So, so there, there is definitely something like that, but I, I would actually probably more put it like they like to have this kind of nice list of prescriptions, what you need to do. I probably want to ask, you know, why don't they do it? And in that sense, you know, right. can we actually understand why some do it and others don't do it in a bit more sophisticated way? Because, you know, these lists are, you know, they're not mutually exclusive. They're a little bit different, but common sense policies are definitely not present in some of these countries where it all goes wrong. And it's, I, I don't believe in this theory of ignorance, you know, that that, right. that leaders do this all because they, they weren't told or they didn't have the right nudge somehow to actually do the right policies. It's actually, they make deliberate choices and just think of the objective function of, uh, of, 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 of an elite, uh, what they are trying to maximize and, and you'll get a long way. And I think these, these kind of theories indeed, of the, these kind of authors don't really tell us a lot about this. And, um, so and it's I a think theory it, of political will, if you like. I mean, because that's often been the missing, oh, yeah, there's, yeah. the political will is missing. Yeah. So you're now but, explaining why the political will could be missing or, yes. might, or might. And, and it's this point that, then again, what I said in the beginning is that political will tends to elude, it's all just about the prime minister and the president. Right. It's actually broader, it's elite will. It's That's why. I, talk about a kind of a shared commitment you know you can we know in plenty of countries where there may at times become a president or a prime minister that actually seems to be well-meaning and tries to do things and that just nothing gets done that's not because there wasn't a political will at his top but but actually the structures the 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 business interests and so on would would stop it entirely so it is it's elite will the kind of the shared commitment of the elite that you have there and and you just have to take that into account and you know it's it's and I find it very striking that, you know, you mentioned Jeff Sachs kind of wants to ignore this. You know, it's like somehow we just know how to do it. You know, we it's 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 self-evident, and you know we can sit in New York and just pontificate about it, and then we'll give them a lot of money and everything will be fine, and that's the only problem that's left. That kind of silver bullet, that simplicity of it, is is just 
goes against the reality of almost any of us who've worked on the ground, dealt with governments. And um, yeah, and, and, and at the same time, I want to have a tolerance. I don't want to have this, this view of, you know, they're all dark forces. It's, it's again, not like they all are just really don't want and they want Africa as a country, is a kind of a country uh, homogenous in the interests of the elites everywhere in the same way. And, you know, there are places where, you know, you should just be willing to give a bit of rope because it may not be perfect, but they're trying to go somewhere. That takes us to this question of gambling on development. Your book, your book is called Gambling on Development. I remind everyone, available in all good bookstores. That's an interesting choice of focus for the title. In what sense is this a gamble? Right. So, you know, the status quo is quite easy often for an elite. You know, actually, keeping power is easier than gaining power. Um, you know, keeping a country peaceful is usually easier than coming out of conflict. You know, you, you, you know what you have. You know, whatever you have, it may not be perfect, but, but you have it. An elite that actually wants to do for something in the long run actually risks undermining its own political dynamics. You know, what you get with a growing economy, and we saw this, for example, interestingly, in, the, in Indonesia in the early 1970s, you know, it was an economy very much closed, no foreign direct investment, really, a bit of natural resources. So Hatter came to power after a period of conflict. He had limited legitimacy through the military coup, even with the elite. But he had to somehow move forward because legitimacy was risking to be lost with the population. It had to be really important uh, upheaval. He needed to open up the elite a bit by allowing investment and new, new players to come in. Japanese investments invited working together. Now, that's a political risk because you're bringing new players in the elite. And actually, the dynamics, you don't know where it will get you to. In fact, in the end, he was deposed in 1997 after the Asia crisis. You know, this is a gamble there as well. And you need to play that game. So there is definitely a kind of a gamble that, that growth changes dynamics in your society, development, education, health, all these things that begin to change dynamics in your society. You don't know necessarily where it, where it takes you. So in that sense, it definitely is a gamble for an elite to go for it, to actually say, well, look, it's a gamble because in expectation we'll probably be either maintain our position or maybe even be stronger when we come out of it. And that's actually quite an important choice to take. So, yeah. But it does involve changing the power structures that... that got the elite to be the elite. Yeah, right? so it, it risks doing that. So you don't know where it will. You know, think of China. The, their biggest challenge came in 1989 with Tiananmen Square. That was a risk to the existing power structures. Of course, they repressed it and they kept up the political structures uh, more or less the same while they continued with the economic thing. So, but the risks are there. And you could really say that the reforms in 1979 probably had a link with why 1989 looked as it, as, as, as it did. But also then, you know, they, 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 so, but this is a risk. This, there's a risk that they, the society took. But isn't it inevitable that as, as you have an emerging middle class, as you have firms, as you have, you know, um, uh, civil society emerging, that must disrupt power, right? It's, this is not a risk. It's, I mean, you're, you're, you're suggesting it's a gamble in the sense that you don't know what will happen. But you kind of do know what will happen, right? If you, if, if you, create, if you create a middle class or allow a middle class to emerge, it will eventually topple an extractive government. Sure, but um, it, it may topple an extractive 
government, but it not necessarily removes it away from power. You know, the same elites have been very good historically to reinvent themselves from from uh, big landowners to MPs and so on. You know, you 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 can be part of that transition as well. It doesn't necessarily undermine it. It changes, but it is a little bit like uh, the Lampedusa. You know, everything has to change so everything can stay, stay stay the same. So there's a bit of that in as well. But but the emphasis is really you know. You know, there are other choices you can, can make to keep your elite structures intact. In and again, it's great that then actually you see countries doing it via development, via growth. And it maybe comes back to, to the fact that, you know, look, they're not just only there to line their pockets. There are players in the elite that actually like this idea of, of a country, of a society progressing. So is it your view that if, if an elite decides in some form that they want to strike the bargain, they want to promote development, that that's actually a pretty straightforward thing to do, that as it were, this is a solved problem, that that if, if the political will, to, to um, use that glib phrase, is there, then it's not rocket science to know that the sort of list of things that you should do, even in a low-resource setting. So, yes, yeah, so, so again, it's very hard to become Singapore or China, but actually to for Malawi to get a couple of percentage higher growth, actually it shouldn't be that hard. But it's you have to be willing to probably disrupt certain structures. You have to be willing right. to do certain things that at the moment, you know, really undermine growth potential, efficiency of the economy, the functioning of food markets. You know, you need to be willing to do something and, and you need to be willing to do it. And also... So the gamble isn't on the reform, isn't on what it is you need to do. The gamble is on whether you can sustain exactly. the political coalition to do it. Exactly. That's exactly right. And it's the, because the list of things you need to do, you know, it's if you start looking across countries what they've done, you know, we have, yeah, you, you, you don't want to screw up your macroeconomy too much, but actually plenty of countries do strange things with the macroeconomy and then at some point they had to correct it. And the same with, you know, whether you need to do first education and massively or first health or whatever. You know, there is no obvious recipe there for what you should be doing. You need to do all these things at some point and the sequencing is not so self-evident and you can't just do one and ignore the other. You know, there's, there's a, it's not so hard, especially if you look at the record of successful places. They never did really ever first best textbook economics in terms of what you think would probably be the best. So they were often a bit of a compromise. The important thing, though, is that in the spirit of you, can you keep your coalition going for it? It also means you have to be willing to correct. Mm. You know, you will have certain parts of your coalition and you go in a particular direction, but that doesn't quite work. Then you need to correct it. They may lose a bit and so on. So there is a lot of stuff there. And that learning part, that kind of it. So it's not a statement of intent, but the willingness to see through relative to the outcomes and kind of really correcting yourself. That's probably the hardest bit. And that's the one that, you know, we got in the examples from China, really amazingly well done. Indonesia probably needed outside agencies like the IMF once in a while to actually provide some form of correction that is politically slash acceptable slash non-acceptable kind of thing. You know, you're kind of playing that game a little bit to do it. It's very hard to correct when things go a bit wrong, but that's where the politics comes into it again. So I've I've got another book in my pile uh, for perhaps a future edition of Development Drums by Chris Blackman called Why We Fight, 
And he, Chris, talks uh, sort of more explicitly than you do about game theory uh, and to explain why war and conflict break out. And in some sense, your story is a game theory story, although you, you don't use much of that language, about why development happens in some places and not in others. And it's to do with whether the, the elite can sustain a coalition and, and secure the long term. You know, clearly everyone's better off if you have a growing pot provided you can sustain the coalition to, to cooperate for that. So do you think, I mean, it's interesting that you and Chris have both come out with these sort of game theoretic approaches to, to two different but related topics. Are we now moving more towards thinking of game theory as a way of describing collective action problems in the way nations make choices? Are we, are, are economists now moving, you know, it, if the economics is solved, we know we know what to do for development, and it's all about the collective action problem. Should we be leaving that to the political scientists, to the historians, to the anthropologists, to tell us? You know, is it is this? Are we now beyond where economists have something to add? Um, yeah, that, that seems to be like two questions in the same at the same time. Somehow, you know, should we leave it to others? Um, I'll pick that up in a moment. But first, you know. Is that a kind of framework you can think of it? I mean, in, in any case, I think even a language of economics as a kind of the presence of multiple equilibria, you know, and it's not self-evident and it's choices that lead you into one path rather than another path. Okay. Once you're in that choice, then it's typically as kind of game theory also will say, it's very hard to then deviate from that Nash equilibrium. And then the collective action plays plays in there, just as there is the kind of the choice which path you will be taking. And then it, you know, it's pretty hard to go from one to another equilibrium. Um, so, so yeah, there's definitely something. I mean, I'm, though I'm at one level, I was going to say, well, you know, Thomas Schelling was writing about in 1960s, you know, it's not as if it's new and, and, and in, and in decision-making, and in trying to explain outcomes, we've been doing that for quite a long time. There, there is, there's a, a big literature on multiple equilibria in, in economics. There is a big literature in political science on political settlements, which is ultimately political equilibria, where, you know, they try to explain why we have that particular equilibrium, where, you know, some of the better writers in it clearly also acknowledge there could have been another equilibrium, there mm. could have been another outcome that you get. And so... I think where we're getting at in any case is to is to think much more about the agency of political decision makers, that it's not deterministic. You know, that, that's the thing I think in 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 definitely in economics and a little bit in in um, maybe in some political science, but I'm sure there's plenty of excellent work there as well. Is but you get sometimes the kind of thing, you know, I want to just be able to predict which single equilibrium they take, you know, in a world of multiple Nash equilibriums, it's the movements, the moves, what, what counter move they take, what coincidental factors matter at that moment, you know, do I do an economic reform in agriculture and then a, a drought hits? It will derail it and it will make it harder to go to that, 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 that successful uh, equilibrium. Think of Ethiopia, we do an economic deal, a very clear trajectory with a we knew always a weak political deal between the different nationalities, the ethnic groups. You know, at some point that elite bargain breaks down on the political political side while the economics gets dragged into it. So there are multiple outcomes that you can have, but decision-making at a particular moment in time, they're doing it. So yeah, so there is definitely scope for that more strategic 
thinking, if game theory is, a, is, the, is the kind of the science about strategic behavior, then I think there's definitely, um, we're definitely there, but I think we've been there for a while and maybe just not articulated well enough in the development policy space and so on. Interesting. So let's let's move now to development cooperation because that, that moves nicely uh, to this question of, you know, we're not in the room when the elite bargain is struck. In fact, there is no room where the elite, there is no elite bargain in the, in the sense of people coming together and doing the deal, right? These things emerge and it's an equilibrium. It's not a... Is not a contract. So given that we're not in the room and we probably don't understand the nuances and the nature of those contracts, what is it that, you know, at the end of your book, you talk about the role for development cooperation for aid and, and other policies. What is it that you think we should do if your thesis is right about the elite bargain? So I think the the, the first thing is clearly to make sure that we much better understand the places that we deal with, uh, not naively just report on who wins an election or not, but actually really think through, you know, how is how are political coalitions, business coalitions, how their coalitions of business with politics and so on, how they're shaped and how they actually shape a country. <clears throat> so it's quite important to to have a, a good understanding of it because fundamentally anything an outsider may want to do will be mediated by that. You know, there isn't, you can't really change anything there in isolation. So there is this, and that's, that's one thing that out, I all the time use the words of outsiders because to actually emphasize, you know, Washington, New York or London or Beijing, they don't run these countries. You know, and sometimes when you sit in your government departments, you still behave a little bit like as if you do it, as if you can really shape it. You know, you you are there as an as an as an outside agent. So, just be very aware of where something is going and where that where 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 country is going with the trajectory. Um, probably the second thing is then humility in terms of what you can do. You know, humility in terms of how small a role in the big changes in the developing world in terms of growth and development, or how small the role has been of these outside agencies. They are, and, and the most successful way for, um, for outside agencies, whether it's, you know, Washington-based uh, IVs, international financial institutions, World Bank, IMF, or, or, you know, aid agencies have supported countries is to actually buy into countries that actually are trying to actually do something reasonable and show signs that they're willing not to do it purely ideologically, but with some learning and, 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 and some direction. And then we get countries like Ghana and Bangladesh, where I actually would say, well, probably international community have actually played a, quite a good role, you know, being constructive, supportive, you know, not no knee-jerk reactions when there were bits of corruption here or things that are derailed, but actually really part of of uh, supporting a progress that there is. Um, and then the final thing is, it's then this more conceptual thing, that you, in all the actions that you take, just make sure that you think through the actions that I do, whatever program it is, whatever intervention I do, whatever big or small program I do, is there a chance that I'm actually raising the returns for those people who actually want to have a development bargain or do I raise the cost of those who actually want to make it really problematic and especially 
don't give them an excuse, those with about elite parking, to actually say, oh, I don't have to bother with anything. I don't have to do anything. I mean, my best example that I definitely, and it, it, it will be engraved on my memory, that, that day that going behind enemy lines in South Sudan with a UN helicopter go and visit what was happening in rebel health con uh, territory in terms of the humanitarian effort. And then on the one hand seeing, you know, there's a, across the airport there, there was a very small sand strip with, with, um, with um, lots of NGOs there, NGOs that had been there delivering emergency aid for 30 years. You know, emergency aid, 30 years, that's a strange thing. Okay, fine, go and talk to the rebel commander and you ask him well, what you think of all these NGOs and said, oh, I love them. They allow me to get on with the business of war. Then you kind of begin to question, you know, what is it that we're doing? What is the deal we have with this kind of terrible elite bargain in South Sudan? Right. They change, would, it changes the incentives. Exactly, it changes the incentives and it makes it even more likely that they can sustain this terrible elite bargain. So anything you can do to try to shift that. And, and this is, yeah. But, well, so that's, I mean, that is potentially a pretty reactionary view, right? Let's, let's just pause on that. Because one, one view of the world, which I suppose is my starting point, is there isn't a huge amount that outsiders can do about whether a country will or won't take off. Will it or won't reach, uh, you know, a more inclusive uh, elite bargain? Um, you know, th these are things we don't fully understand and, and where we don't have an enormous amount of influence. But what we can do, in theory, subject to the point you've just made, is support populations through very difficult times while that either is or is not happening in the country where they live, right? We can provide people with health and education and clean water and, and so on, not with the expectation that this will change the elite bargain and the development trajectory, but at least it means people won't see their children die of avoidable diseases. Um, when we could vaccinate them and save their lives, so that sounds like you know potentially it's it's not a you know it, it's not the sales pitch that our ministers and our aid agencies often give us, which is that we're going to bring about development. But it seems a perfectly reasonable function for international development cooperation to say we can try and alleviate the suffering until this happens. But if you're now saying, well, actually, by alleviating the suffering, we actually perpetuate the day when that elite bargain is reached and development takes off, then that's quite a, you know, a pessimistic view about the role of aid, right? You're left, you know, there's very little. That you Then you're not even left with childhood vaccination, right? You know, we shouldn't be vaccinating people because that enables countries to uh, sustain uh, kleptocratic or badly governed or poor choices by elites. Is that... Is that really your view? Um, well, the, it, it, yes and no, and that's, that's not just trying to be a diplomatic answer, is that where the way you summarized my view, actually where it goes wrong, is to actually make it as this kind of dichotomy in terms of uh, these are the only two choices you have. I actually have a much more nuanced view. I actually say there are countries where that first thing that you, that first thing that you describe um, is uh, where, where, you know, we can really support populations and so on, where it actually coincides with what government's trying to do. 
So I'm a big fan and, and, and sold kind of the countries like in Bangladesh and in, in, in Ghana. And I would say there are signs of it as far as I'm concerned. Even in Kenya, there was definitely in Ethiopia. Yes, going through a difficult patch. And I hope it comes back to something there. There are these countries where you can actually, as outsider, support the direction a country is going. That is, broadly speaking, at least in developmental terms, good for the population. You know, we can argue about is it a perfect society and 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 and, and liberal in the way we would want it. But you could say, look, you can really good good do things, and you can get the children educated, you get the children vaccinated, you can actually help to to accelerate the development they're doing. So that's a country with a development bargain that actually say, and I actually think that's my po the optimistic side of me is saying. There are more countries where I see signs of that and right. compared to 30 years ago is that. So there we have a big role. So that's where I'm with you entirely because we can almost, you know, almost, I say, blindly do it. You know, you want to be careful and so on and you don't want to get um, undermine state capacity or make it worse and corruption, all this kind of thing. But you, you can collectively work with these governments because they want to progress mm. these agendas. Then there are the other parts where indeed I want us to be much more careful. And even though there is a lot of need, I want us to be very cautious because I do worry that um, I'm not going to make a judgment on the current president in Malawi, but up to the previous one, for 60 years, we've given them, it must be from the UK, more than a billion of aid. We don't have that much to show for in terms of actually giving hope to these populations of change. Yes, health is improved a lot, and I don't think it's wrong, but I do worry about is the way we've been operating there. Actually, we have not really been constructive, and we actually may well actually cause generational harm by actually that there's very little there. So, so it's in these kind of places that I want us to be far more cautious and where I'm actually a bit more pessimistic. So, so In the places without a development bargain, yeah. say Malawi... Uh, or DRC or Nigeria, it, where you're not confident that spending money in the way we have has you know uh, doesn't perpetuate the lack of uh, the lack of progress towards a pro-development elite bargain. Is it your view we should stop investing in health and education and hunger and clean water or we should do it but do it differently than we have in the past or what yes so so it's definitely about differently than we do it in the past so so i clearly ask for a much more selective way of how we think about aid and outside intervention so of course you know the moral side and i hope to still to be a moral moral human is to actually say well alleviating suffering is 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 makes sense uh, you know, health and education are important and creating the conditions that future generations can do. So I'm, I'm there with it. But we should be willing to call some of the things that we batch as development as actually much more just doing it from a moral or hum humanitarian point of view and possibly with kind of negative consequences as well. And we have to have the first instance to have a bit of that honesty that... Uh, that when we do these actions, that actually we can't be neutral. We are part of what's happening right. in these places. And, but that also then wants me to, meet, wants me to be a bit more uh, ambitious about it as well. The way we then work in education and health, what I then wouldn't do is simply 
set up all a beautiful parallel system and just do some delivery and the only thing that counts is a short-term result, but actually thinking carefully about, you know, how we actually work in these countries and then come back to what I was alluding to. Are we actually improving those who would like to gamble, the, the, the odds for the gamble on development, for those who want to actually support that? Or are we actually improving the odds for the status quo that is bad? And really literally start thinking about it, how we actually work in that. And I feel in practice, I've seen too much of it, Globally, this is not just like of the UK, or whatever, but whether it comes from Beijing or Washington or Brussels, we seem to be non-selective about it. And mm. we claim, well, some, well, we claim not to interfere. Some say it explicitly, other behave as if they're not, and we're just technocratically doing support. But we're actually perpetuating bad outcomes. And I think across the board, whether it's from Beijing or from Brussels or from, from Washington, there is a need to be much more willing to accept that actually there is a risk that we are perpetuating bad elite bargains and we should just be a bit more smart about it and thinking through it. It may mean maybe sometimes less aid and actually much more carefully thinking about is what, what should we doing doing here and how we're actually doing it. Um, it should be maybe much more carefully, not just focused on the need, but actually the longer term impact of what we do and so on. So, yeah, I do ask for much more careful way of assessing and much more selective way of doing that. So lots of different things to discuss it. So I, uh, the, Andy Haldane has this article. Uh, he's the former chief economist at the Bank of England now uh, at the Royal Society for Arts. And I think Michael Gove's advisor on levelling up, he has a, a piece a few years ago about the dog and the frisbee, this idea that the trajectory of a frisbee is complex and hard to predict, but the dog has a simple rule of thumb about how to catch the... The dog is able to catch the frisbee without doing the physics modelling of this non-linear trajectory of the frisbee, and that simple rules of thumb can be an appropriate response to complexity and, and you know, that... Although the frisbee trajectory is predictable, the dog can't actually predict it, so it has to use a simple rule of thumb. And I wonder whether this appeal for deep, complex understanding of political systems and elite bargains is you know, a bit like expecting the dog to solve the physics equations. Actually, what you need is some simple rules of thumb that will get you close enough to working out in which conditions you should be providing aid and in which you shouldn't, rather than saying, well, first you have to do a complete study of the of the political system. Is that... So I, I want... Are there some simple rules of thumbs about what would it need to look like for us to be getting behind it? And if there are rules... You know, when you look at countries like Rwanda today, right, which on one version has a very pro-development government... But there's plenty of people who say Rwanda has an authoritarian, illiberal, repressive regime, and we shouldn't be supporting it. So which rule of thumb, what's your rule of thumb for Rwanda, um, uh, you know, as an example about what we should be doing? Should we be getting behind it and helping it deliver it, its elite bargain? Or should we be saying this breaks our sort of basic rule of thumb about what a good government looks like and we're not backing it? Yeah. So... Um, in, in general, so, so there's a couple of simple rules of thumb. One that I like about thinking about aid is um, it always has to be a bit like dancing a tango. You know, 
uh, you both have to be committed for the kind of the the, the, the similar similar objectives, the similar gains. And so, this is a bit like again countries with a development bargain. Um, I I know that if there is signs of it, and that you know you um, you you want to actually really go with them and let them lead in, into into that direction. Now that's about development. That's about growth. Um, there's also when you then have uh, as a rule of thumb, um, you, you kind of say, well, where is your rule of thumb? How do I know this? Um, so I think in the practice of international development, I find this is kind of hugely schizophrenic. During the day, everybody is being technocratic, especially in the big institutions. And then at night, you sit over pizza and, and a beer, and then you end up talking all about the, the, the details of the politics of the place. I think a lot of people, when they put a bit of time in it, they have a bit of a sense, who are the movers and the shakers? Where is it moving the country? Who are the kind of key players? Uh, are there certain groups you could try to gamble on and supporting and so on? So in practice, so it's not so much about the what you do, but the how you do it. Now, coming to the case of Rwanda, it's a difficult choice. I wrote a book about, you know, uh, development and, and growth. And, um, you know, I know that Kagame and, uh, and, and, and the group around him, I have a chapter in it, or at least a section in the book about it, you know, that is legitimacy-seeking behavior. You know, there was a co uh, coming out of conflict, new national narrative, a national narrative of growth and progress, but also of legitimacy of the way the country is run. And will deliver for the people that gives me legitimacy that I'm running this country. And in a way, you know, successive governments across the world have bought into it because they could buy into that. Are there at some point red lines? Um, you know, I'm a bit on the fence on Rwanda. It's been a while on, on, on how to think about it, but I do find it a complicated case. I would, uh, I would find that, I would find it totally respectable if someone said there is a limit at some point on human rights and on political space to, to actually keep on working with them, to keep on dancing the tango, because I think you can perfectly well dance the tango with Rwanda. You know, you can have shared developmental and growth objectives and it can work quite well. And, and I'm quite happy to do it. What I'm probably appealing to, and I've seen this too often in this space, is it depends on the country uh, what, what the red lines would be. Mm. You know, you then see if then some other international tactical reason why you then don't find it problematic, well, then uh, then you still keep on giving the aid. And I, th I would then ask if we bring in some of these kind of other judgments around aid, whether we should or not work as a country with them, I would want us then to be clear about yeah. what these things are. But they are kind of different from developmental and growth objectives. Again, I'm concerned with takeoff, you know. I'm not making predictions when, when Kagame's dream of turning into Singapore or Switzerland can be achieved. But actually at this stage, yeah, you can, if you're concerned with the things we're concerned with, development for people, growth and opportunities for people, I think this is not a bad country to spend on, but I'm totally respectful for other red lines. Can, can we try and square the circle about um, supporting reformers? There's, I, I'm long-time skeptic about the notion of identifying and supporting reformers. And you've got one of your recommendations is identify who are these people that you can work with and, and back them. And I mean, the reason I'm skeptical is that, you know, I believe your story about elite bargains, right? I think that the elite are trying to work out what the 
you know, how they can construct a system that uh, benefits them, and that's broadly not necessarily just their bank balance and their family's bank balance, but the things they want to achieve. And they're trying to they're trying to um, uh, create a, a coalition that can sustain that, and that seems to me to be determined by the available resources, the power of the different interest groups, and so on. What I find hard to believe is that, you know, giving an aid project to a particularly um, influential and eloquent central bank governor uh, or, a, you know, a Ministry of Finance technical official who, you know, did a good presentation at a, at a donor meeting, I, I find it hard to believe that you can really shift the equilibrium that all you're doing, as it were, is sort of pinging the pendulum and it will swing back to whatever the equilibrium was going to be. That might be good or it might not be good. But I, I worry that we over uh, that, that we place too much confidence in our ability both to identify who the real reformers are, because they have no incentive to tell us who the real reformers are, and also our, our ability to really shift the equilibrium through intervention with those kind of micro micro-interventions. What's your... Convince me that backing reform has made... What, what's, what are your best examples of where that's made yes. a difference? So, so no, I, it's an excellent question. And, and, and the first thing is actually to actually emphasise, you know. I mean, even, even when writing the book, the last two chapters I found really hard because <clears throat> we had the conversation, you know... You, you know, if, if the objective function, if the objectives of the elite and those in, in control are not for growth and development, you know, the outsider will always have a minimal role, you know. And, and I know Owen, very well about your scepticism on, 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 on these kind of programs. And I think rightly so, because there's a lot of wishful thinking about that all the time. You know, there's massive theories of change that get written about, oh, as long as we you know, the, the Ministry of Finance is clearly the, 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 the open-minded. Anything we do with the Ministry of Finance is going to be good. And of course, that's, that's naive. That's naive about the way the politics in, in difficult places is working and so on. But so let's make a distinction here between, again, countries where there is a sign, where there is an over, overarching shared commitment in the elite and, and, and reflected in politics to make progress. So, so we, you know, we had in Ghana, we actually had um, we had uh, Botre um, as as one of these people working with Jerry Rawlings. You know, later on he dabbled more into politics, but but there was important intermediaries between getting the kind of change that was beginning to take place in the 90s and actually the the basis for the new political deal, the kind of transitional politics and the acceptance of opposition and, and, and government parties to to exchange power if elections uh, gave these results and so on. So so the, there were these people that had to actually be the intermediaries. I think these are the kind of individuals that were quite important. You know, I... Um, I know, and uh, I don't write about him in the book, you know, my best example is actually Ben Andulu in Tanzania. Mm. You know, someone who is totally respected, and he was totally respected by uh, by President Kikwete, and, and it was important, you know, he was a central bank governor, and unfortunately passed away last year, but a central bank governor in Tanzania, and, and really playing that role of, I know I understand the politics, I know the CCM politics, I also know about how important it is to actually, in his case, keep the macroeconomic stability 
And actually empowering him over time has actually been a very smart move in a country where there was a beginning of actually some form of, let's say, something better than there was before in, 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 in recent times. You know, it's been growing now quite fast. It's actually doing a bit better. Of course, they had Magafuli as a president disruptive, but actually still did certain things that were positive. And now we have a new president. You could say, look, these technocrats, they play an important role. They play an important role as an intermediary between international institutions and the government itself, a translator for different groups in terms of, you know, this is how you can judge us and so on. So I do believe that you that we have actually quite good evidence that several of these characters were actually quite important. And in fact, I'm just writing a piece uh, that probably will be published uh, in some form with the Royal African Society that is, has the title In Praise of African Technocrats. Mm. Because there are these places, especially when the politics is changing, you do need these kind of individuals that actually shepherd this be the bridge between the politics and some decent, reasonable developmental or economic policies. At the same time, in the DRC, just backing someone who suddenly says nice things about reform. In fact, I have in the book a, a whole whole anecdote around it, you know, invited in the prime minister's office and get the most brilliant plans explained on development by 20 sharp-suited, quite young, very smart people. But it's just theatre. And, you know, there was, in fact... There was a question, should we support a prime minister's unit to do more of these beautiful reports? For me, the answer was obvious. No, there's no point doing this because they, there happen. is nothing is not going to happen. So you kind of that judgment of it's not going to happen is actually important. So it can't be this wishful thinking. It's again about being willing to be selective. It's not being complicated, you know. People that work on the ground in these countries, okay, they may make different choices and judgments. But you can make a judgment. You can say, look, it may be worth to gamble a bit on this. And also, probably not worth gambling on this. And so kind of being willing to, to do this. And then, you know, if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. Your skepticism is right on these programs because when it's everywhere we're going to do this, everywhere we think it has this wonderful theories so of change, I, it's not. But I worry it's, it's a version of the ignorance hypothesis that you said earlier you didn't really agree with. The, pro the problem isn't that they don't know what to do. The, the problem is, you know, the elite bargain doesn't enable them to do it. And, you know, either the either they do know what to do, as in your DRC case, and they're not going to do it because the elite bargains, there's no point in supporting them then. Or they do intend to do it, but they actually already know what to do. It's yeah. not because it isn't rocket. It's, it's just hard to see what difference it can make. It's, it's hard to see how it moves the needle if what you're doing is supporting people who basically already know what they need yeah. to do. So, so there is a there is a there is a level of degree. I mean, you know, I'm actually a technical economist, and I'm not going to say that there's nothing that we actually can learn on, you know intervention-based research details and so on. There, I mean, there is, there is still value to technocracy and to actually adapt it to a local context and then learning and then learning by doing and, and, and correcting and so on. It's probably there that I, that, I, that I would mention it. I mean, the example would be in a country at some point, you know, because of all kinds of things, you know, macroeconomic stability, a big shock is occurring. You know, every adjustment to a big macroeconomic shock probably has political costs as well. Mm. So you need somehow these people still there to actually be very conscious of the local politics and to actually kind of maneuver that space 
uh, that actually then can filter, you know, the pure technocracy in it. And so that's actually a bit of their role. They actually are the intermediaries between the pure, the, 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 the error correction that is so important to learning, the correcting and being willing to admit, actually, this is not working, this is working, providing some form of objective information around it, and then helping to translate it into politics. Because the politician has no clue and say, well, you told me it's going to work and it doesn't work now, why should I do this? So, you know, there is still a role of that. So it's not about the, there is knowledge matters still, but broadly speaking, um, you know, it's still about macroeconomic stability, investment, trying to get children to learn, trying to get health. But, you know, look, let's, let us need to not diss all the science and the research that's going to say there's nothing to learn, but actually it needs that kind of both translators and that overall elite bargain that's willing to absorb this. So one place where I think we have a stronger possibility of changing the elite bargain is not in the aid sphere. I mean, you know, I, all the literature about conditionality doesn't work. Exactly. It, it, and, the, and the reason it doesn't work is that, is that the beneficiaries of aid are not the people making the decisions, so, that, so it doesn't affect their payoff. Stuff that does affect their payoff is stuff like um, illicit financial flows, corruption... Um, the extent to which elites can park their money in Swiss bank accounts and, and live in retirement. You know, you can think of the Nigeria example you gave earlier, right? That payoff matrix would look very different if people didn't think they could get their money out of Nigeria. Um, so yeah, and things like trade policy, environmental policy, migration, I don't think you mention in the book, maybe you're just being careful not to stray into politically contentious territory. But it seems to me these non-aid policies that the rest of the world pursues could have quite a big influence on the elite bargain, on the extent to which the elite feel that they can sustain power and and achieve their objectives. Um, And yet we often think of development cooperation in terms of who do we give aid to, how do we give it? rather than what kind of migration policies do we pursue? So, so no, I'm, I'm totally with you. And, and first on this, this general thing, you know, where I actually want to be, us to be a bit much more cautious in the ability of using aid or actions in, you know, countries with a bad elite bargain uh, in terms of changing anything, you know, I'm, I really want us to be very cautious with it. And, you know, I do mention so much in Nigeria, the RC or Malawi and saying, look, I'm not sure that we we know what we're doing there, actually, to, to mm. be honest, in terms of uh, should we be there and what are we doing? So, but there I'm, I'm not entirely sure. I'm very sure about what you just mentioned in terms of the policy side. Um, illicit, I mean, I do discuss a little bit in the book and illicit finance is the obvious one. You know, um, I find it always find quite striking that most of the literature, um, uh, including, you know, excellent writers like Zuckman and so on, end up writing all the time about it's all about the tax lost. You know, I'm, I'm not that interested in giving Kabila uh, or, or Buhari that much extra money back. You know, and that's not because I don't think they're spending it wisely. Um, so it's not about taxes, but it actually is part of the, the, the way, as you were saying, the payoff of, for, for bad politics, how it actually works. 
And it's, you know, there's a lot of uh, uh, suggestive evidence because of how to investigate, but we see it, you see all the time companies linked to all these politicians coming up as well. And this is how politics is financed, Mm. is how they pay off their friends, how they pay off the military if it's necessary, how they pay off the whole thing to keep this power. And basically it's the instrument of the illicit, uh, the instrument of the elite bargain that is is very damaging. And so, so that's the kind of thing, you know, increase the cost of terrible elite bargains by this kind of measures is a great way of, is, is one great way of doing it. Trade policy increases the returns to a much more longer term thing. Migration is an interesting one. You know, it's more that I'm, it's, it, you know, I'm, oh, and I know your views and I'm totally with you. And, uh, and, and, and I do think, you know, we, we underestimate the role, um, you know, the positive role for individuals it can play for uh, for international migration, and also, although it's a much more subtle, is actually the influence it then can have on home countries. I mean, there's the financial thing, but I don't think finance alone changes countries. It's the kind of international connectedness and so on. Right. And I remember seeing this very vividly in Nepal, where you got migration from the countryside into Dubai to do um, building projects or into the Gulf in general for building building projects. And then we would come back with very different attitudes and values to Kathmandu. And so they became quite an important group of people that actually changes both the balance of the elite bargain somewhat, and they need to be taken into account. Is that middle class that you that starts emerging and other things? So I think it's there. Um, at the same time, um, you know, and yeah, I didn't write about migration, but that's basically how I would think about how it, how how it would work as well. Um, it's it's a subtlety as well, of course, is that. Um, you know, battle elite bargains are also sustained by the children of the elites managing to go to my university and to Harvard and so on and come back even more equipped mm. to with all the instruments to do it. And in fact, if I learned one thing in terms of writing this book that I thought, my God, it would be not so difficult to actually be an advisor <laughs> to one of these terrible regimes because it's not so hard to keep to, to play the game as, as you want it. And we shouldn't underestimate that this that kind of international jet-setting globalization of easy movement around, it's not the poorest groups that end up being able to go. It's often uh, a lot of the people that are the better off that can establish these connections as well, uh, including in form of lobbying and so on. So we shouldn't overstate that it's all that the international migration makes it easier for the elite bargains to be mm. disrupted. Of course, it helps helps them as well. So I'm I'm a bit more ambivalent, and why I didn't write about it, I actually had a, a section on it. And I said I'm not happy because I don't feel like I can fully articulate what it is. But it's a fascinating topic for discussion. Basically, does the way we do international migration at the moment does it make it easier or make it harder for cons- current elite bargains to be sustained? And do we have to have a different way of thinking about migration? also in the in function of that. But, but it's interesting that when we think about Russia today, yeah. you know, we turn to sanctions including travel bans, right? So we you know, when we when we're thinking seriously about trying to shift the bargain, we do think about migration as and and movement of people as one of the levers as well as financial flows yeah. and so on. But it's, it I mean I think it's really interesting that that for countries like Russia today, we do turn to these non-aid instruments. Yeah. But it's interesting that you 
give the example, there it actually say we're going to restrict migration. And that's not right. just restricting migration for the elite. We probably are getting closer to making it harder to across the board, even other people to actually move around, you know. And and so you so it's almost like saying, well, international migration may actually aid Right. Uh, the, the thing. And so it's an interesting thing is that like on what side, to, where, where do we end up? Where the simple developmental case that I know you also strongly support is is much more politically neutral almost. It's a yeah. development and economic one. Maybe we should start thinking about what does it do for on, 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 in international politics? There, is, there was a study, the IMF working paper a few years back about showing that if students went and studied in more... Uh, democratic countries, that that tended to bring dem- more positive views about democracy back to the country from which they originally came. Yes, um, and, so. and obviously we in Oxford will quote that all the time. Yeah, um, sure. <laughs> but it is the kind of thing, you know. And yes, you know, it's hard to study. It's hard to actually get a good evidence. I'm, I'm, I'm very willing, and I'm, you know. If I have a confirmation bias, then I will be very happily mm. take that study as the evidence. Um, I do worry that I even know personally people that I know were in Oxford in the time mm. that I was teaching there may even have taught them. And I say, hmm, doesn't make me very happy that I can actually say oh, this was my student uh, in that respect either. Well, I've taught at the LSE, so I, I feel your pain. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> now, um, let's let's finish up by, by reflecting on your uh, time as Chief Economist and Development Policy Advisor. Um, you, I mean, I remember when you joined as chief economist, Andrew Mitchell uh, brought you in as chief economist. Um, you didn't strike me then as being very politically connected and politically savvy. Um, was, that, was that an act or have you learned a lot about politics doing the, doing the job as, uh, as chief economist and then in, uh, as development policy advisor? Well, I, I, I like to think that it, that it was an act. Um, but look, I've, I've always been interested in politics, and I, I know that if I had stayed in Belgium, my country of birth, I probably would have ended up dabbling into politics as well. And it's actually being the outsider in a, in another country, and also trying to make a university career, uh, you actually you know you turn into a, a technical person, um, and, and 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 that's what you then focus on. You turn a bit into a, a geek, but it was was interesting that how when I joined how often people want to try to describe the job as technical Mm. and that I very quickly learned that actually you know even it's not just about understanding the political economy of the DRC to do a job like that well you better understand the political economy of Whitehall and of the UK and that actually is something striking that in this quest for neutrality the underlying knowledge part you know do I actually understand what's going on um, is is an important part so no I found it I found it from the beginning very interesting and I you know you come into a new job it's a strange new world but it's um, you know, I was going to come for three years. I stayed for seven as chief economist. I clearly seem to have enjoyed it, but may have done also a few things right. Yeah. Can Can you remember now what surprised you most when you, as it were, came behind the curtain? Well, it definitely... Um, so, so one thing that surprised me most that I have no clue about is actually, well, basically the policymaking process. Hmm. Um, I remember in my first few days... 
uh, a senior person kept on repeating in a meeting, no, the issue is not whether there is evidence, the issue is whether we have a compelling case. Where the compelling case was like a, a good narrative theory, and then hopefully we could cite little piece of evidence on the back of it that actually gives it some respectability. So this whole idea of policy making of, of this kind of market for ideas where subsequently knowledge and evidence were largely as a kind of the footnote to make it credible right. to a certain audience, but not actually the one that will make it salient for the politician. And um, yeah, that was interesting. And uh, the debates about also, I thought one moment that I will not forget is, you know, uh, this was with Justin Greening, who, you know, was a sector of state for a very long time. I think she actually was really committed to one and she really wanted to do the job very well. And this was a, a moment on cash transfers where, you know, uh, Diffit had built up a reputation early on to back the idea that cash transfers are a good idea, definitely relative to food and, and other things. And we wanted to keep on building up on that. And we were spending quite a lot of money about it. Actually, after the financial crisis, austerity comes. And at some point, we were clearly told um, we can't be seen to be doing cash transfers and increasing our cash transfers in certain countries while we meanwhile are cutting right. benefits in the north of England. And it's basically beginning to understand that actually the choices we make, you really have to understand the politics of your place. And in fact, a lot of what we do in aid is it may still be reasonable things in practice when we start spending it, but what we do and why we do it is so strongly filtered by your domestic right. politics lens. Right, and I think the whole aid effectiveness agenda, you know, has has articulated a set of things that are politically unfeasible. I mean, I think the reason why we do aid the way we do is because that's the equilibrium between the political interests of decision makers here yeah. and um, trying to yeah. trying to do as well as we can subject to that constraint. Yeah. I mean, and there is still a case, you know, that's still still even in the kind of difficult situation that, say, an FCDO finds itself in and, and other organisations find themselves in, you know, within the constraints you have, you know, there's still space to say, do health really well and working with the government, with local systems, finding the building up. There's actually still quite a few degrees of freedom that I have despite this political thing, but it's more this kind of headline, you know, do you spend on the big themes that you end up spending on and so on? You can't just be driven by, you know, the the very best buy or the, the, or the highest impact. You, you kind of have to- Do you think if the- Aid technocrats had been more politically savvy. I don't mean you, but I mean all of us. Um, we could have avoided the cut from 0.7 percent. Do you think? Do you think that that was a consequence of a sort of excessive puritanism about what is effective aid and what what we should use the aid budget for? If we'd been a bit more political, could we have could we have navigated through that without the cut? So, I think if we'd been a bit more politically savvy, we wouldn't have gone. To the point seven in the way we did at in the first instance we would have we would have thought just more carefully about it because um the, the time it happened was chosen for political reasons it was not because suddenly this is the right moment in a kind of a longer term political economy mm. you know in the middle of austerity going to that higher higher budget you antagonized all the rest of government all the rest of whitehall so, so I think we may have lost that battle a, a long time ago in it. And, um, 
And maybe the other point I want to make is if I've, if I've learned one thing, is the is maybe we're too obsessed with it, mm. and we're too obsessed with the volume of it. It's and and I I think this is definitely the theme in my book as well is that you know it's all about how you use these resources and having you know and really ask the question is it helping development and is it helping development in the long term and is it and it's not just even getting the results in the short term the children nourished or the or the life saved uh if we can you know if, if that's the metric we're using but it's actually thinking through you know what do what's the best thing we do actually with these resources um, but it's not just about the resources it's also about the you know we were talking just now about no, exactly, flows exactly, exactly. and trade and no, so no, on. it's exactly what we do with these resources and not being obsessed with the money the money flows because actually what we do in these countries how we behave to them how we do the policies here these things in the end are far more important i mean in a very simple way the fact that the uk supported the move to the, the globalization by 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 you know making trade uh, more open, of course, as part of the EU at the time, but actually cutting agricultural subsidies over time and doing all kinds of things to actually supporting the development of global value chains um, may have been far more important for this wave of development than actually any of the aid we've actually spent in practice. So, you know, there is, I'm totally with you there. It's this, this bigger picture is, is far more important. Do you think that moving differed into the foreign office the creation of fcdo will enable that joint department to focus more on some of these non-aid issues will will we begin to see development um motives affecting uk government choices about i was i was struck when i read the section about kenya you talked about anglo leasing and how a british company had bribed the government in kenya clearly we were part of the problem there I don't remember anybody being prosecuted for that. Um, I, you know, I, somebody write in and tell me if I've if I've forgotten that. But I, you know, we could have stamped out, you know, we could have uh, uh, clamped down on that kind of thing, and we really haven't. we and when DFID was a separate department, it was mainly focused on obtaining and spending the aid budget. Could we have a broader set of instruments in, in FCDO towards development, or is that, uh, am I dreaming? Well, you know, when we look into the future, maybe dreaming is the, is, is the best way of, of doing it at the moment. It's, it's, it's unclear, of course, where it can go. But if you ask me, is, is it potentially a good thing to trying to, you know, make sure that what you do on foreign policy, but also what you do on trade policy and other things that is not just in the gift of the foreign office uh, or the ex-foreign office, that you actually, you know, bringing it together and finding some coherence that is generally developmental, that is willing to have a longer-term vision for these countries that is hopefully benign and not just narrow self-interest from us. Yeah, surely, by, by you need your other parts of government to do so. Um, where it will go, well, we'll, we'll, we'll see. But it's, um, yeah, I, I think, but maybe you're dreaming. On, on the other hand, what's been happening with Ukraine and with Russia has opened the door for a far more forward-leaning kind of policy of these non-aid instruments on illicit finance, beneficial ownership, and security these, guarantees. I think of Collier's work on security guarantees in the bottom billion. And, yes. you know, suddenly we're seeing the, the potential value of that. Yes. And we, we can see 
some of these kind of things that we were never doing for a developmental reason, we're getting, not least with the illicit finance and beneficial ownership, some of the legal frameworks that yeah. we couldn't get through Parliament. So I look actually forward to to applying these carefully because it's it's really problem with the, the, the it, it creates risks of knee-jerk reactions in policy making. So the problem with some of these kind of policies to this country is that it leads to, oh, I don't like a vote in the Security Council, so now I'm going to actually see what all the instruments I can have to punish a country or something. That I worry about. But at the same time, we've gone further than ever before on these things. And so I see, I find that quite positive. And maybe there is a case here to make, you know, in my optimistic moment, Globalization is clearly getting less. The, the trade route, so the, oppor the opportunity route for development is maybe going going down a little bit. At the same time, the cost of terrible elite bargains may actually go up. And so we may actually still get other countries that actually do the change and do better, maybe not by massively being able to take advantage of global opportunities, but actually within their own countries, getting better political and economic deals that are less uh, destructive or anti-developmental in their own countries. In some sense, our own elite bargain is changing in the face of, you know, of Brexit, of the slowdown in globalisation of, of, of Ukraine, our own ideas about what's how to hold the coalition together here is changing and that will have implications for the way we work on development. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And I mean, the, the, it, and it is fascinating to see is that the main parties have to kind of realign their own elite bargains and look at it in other places than they had. But it's also interesting is that, and this is of course what a democracy brings, which you may like or may not like, which is the marginal voter will determine some of these big policy choices. And the marginal voter will be, you know, it could be, you know, what they call the red wall, red seats, wall seats and the kind of uh, the, 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 the seats that have turned more Tory uh, in, in, in the North than previously were Labour. You know, their opinions on it is far more um, both uninterested or actually quite negative compared to the more median voter that used to be in the south southeast who who labor could in the coalition under tony blair um the coalition i mean the kind of elite bargain under that they could tap into become more important that is actually made was maybe more benign uh, about it and so it's this kind of shift of our outward orientation gets driven by what's happening in in, in these groups um and i find it interesting i don't know you know how these things, how they can change, because it's all, let's say, it's not quite vested, it's not quite settled, and we'll see in the coming years of how, how this will keep on shifting. Stefan Durkin, thanks for coming on Development Drums. Stefan's book, uh, Gambling on Development, uh, is out now, and I strongly recommend it. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, Owen. Thank you. <laughs>